Good morning, everybody. Uh, I know we've got a couple of people still still joining us. This session is building on Tuesday's session. Um, we're sort of doing a little mini series on on mergers, sort of keeping uh, up with our sort of our strategy about growth and professional services firms pursuing their their growth strategy. On Tuesday, we focused on the sort of the pre merger. How do you find a merger partner? Should you be merging? What are good reasons to merge? And so this session sort of launches us off at, at the point at which a firm has decided yes. Uh, it's right to merge, this is a good thing for the firm, has effectively identified a merger partner. And we're looking more more closely at the the merger process here in terms of how do you embark on that merger process? How should you manage that merger process? And how do you get a merger successfully across the line? I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by our panel this morning. We've swapped out a couple of speakers from last time to get a slightly different perspective, but there's some old friends as well, um, old in the familiar rather than the age, just to those discrimination people at, at bay. Um, looking around my screen at the very least, on my left, I've got uh, Zulon Begum, who is a partner at CM Murray, focusing on non-contentious work, transactions, mergers, LLP conversions, all, all good stuff in this context. Uh, we've got Rob Millard at Cambridge Strategy Group, who's sort of really focused on the strategy side of things and sort of that kind of looking down and why are you doing things and what are you looking to achieve in, in your merger process. Andrew Pavlovich, who's also at CM Murray, focusing on the regulatory, the, the kind of the, the technical sort of really kind of detailed side of things on, on the professional regulation and the regulation around this merger process and where the bear traps are. David Shuffle-Botham on the remuneration, excuse me, from Pep Up Consulting, um, on remuneration, compensation, managing that dynamic of partners and, and the money side of things, which can be really huge in a merger discussion. And, and last but not least, we've got David Fisher, also from CM Murray, who's an employment and partnership expert, but today we're really drawing on his employment law expertise and particularly around that sort of tricky issue of managing the employment side, the the employee transfer side, and and that sort of big piece around how you manage the people um, in in a merger process. So as you can hear, we've got some really fantastic people to hear from and some great insights to come. we, we've explored the rationale for the merger and the recording is available um, in terms of why we're merging. So we're focusing on the process and I'd like Zulon, if you can, something of an impossible task. Are you able to give us a really quick snapshot of what the kind of the entire merger process involves? Hi, thanks, Corinne. Um, and yeah, hello, everyone. So we've got a graphic up on there on the screen because I'm un- under strict instructions to keep this to 90 seconds from Corinne. Otherwise, I'm going to self-destruct. So I'm going to very quickly go through this um, process map. And some of these issues we'll be discussing in a lot, lot more detail as we go along. I just wanted to give you a brief kind of overview of the whole process. So we normally kind of to kick off. So you've done the piece about do you want to merge, who you want to merge with, you found you found your ideal partner. So now you want to kick off into the actual nitty gritty of of doing the, the merger itself. So you would normally start with appointing your core team um, internally and any advisors that you might require. So it may be tax advisors, it may be strategy advisors, you probably have those on board already. Um, It might also be legal advisors if you're not advising yourself. Um, And then you'd move on to the non-disclosure agreement stage with with the other party. And that's a very important stage to ensure that you're able to share information. And Andrew's going to talk a bit more about that and the regulatory implications that might come with that. Um, And then once you've got that in place, you can then move on to the preliminary due diligence stage and negotiations leading up to the heads of terms. 
Uh, and then once once you've kind of got to that stage, you would then ideally start your start to initiate your partner engagement and the partner approval process. And that will also kind of depend on what's in your current partnership agreement as to when that needs to start exactly and at what stage you need your approvals. So you need to consider that very carefully. So once you've got to that stage, then you'd come to the heads of terms. You've, you've got the preliminary terms of the deal hammered out uh, and there's a lot of negotiation that goes into that. Um, and again, we'll go into a lot more detail about what's normally in the heads of terms later on. And then we have the regulatory and other, sorry, the detailed due diligence um, negotiations piece that moves on to the, the key kind of merger, merger agreement and other transaction document stage. Uh, and again, you'll have another stage of probably um, needing a, another final partner approval. Again, that all depends on what your constitution says. Uh, and then once you're once you're at that stage, you move on to the merger agreement signature um, and other transaction documents. And other transaction documents can include things like a new LLP agreement or a revised LLP agreement for the merge group, uh, and various other kind of ancillary documents that go along with that. Um, and normally, we see in professional services mergers that there is usually a split exchange and completion, and that's normally because you've got lots of things that you need to kind of get sorted before you press a button on completion. So you'd normally exchange and you'd have a period where you get your conditions in place. So it's normally regulatory approvals, the 2P process, any other kind of third party consents that you might need. Um, and of course, David's going to talk about the, the whole people picture in this, in this because we are putting together two people businesses and that's a big piece of the puzzle here. Um, and before completion, you'll have the whole kind of gamut of operational issues that you need to sort out before you go live. And normally it's things like, things around IT, infrastructure, communications and PR. Um, and then, of course, you get to the completion and then you get to the integration, which is another slide in itself, which I won't go into right now because I've come up to my 90 seconds, I think, Corinne. That's probably right, Zulon, but I'm, I'm impressed with how quickly you did get through such a giant amount of information. Um, thank you. That, that's incredibly helpful. I think what I'd like to do is to start off by focusing probably on the, on the initial discussions and that heads of term phase in terms of how do you decide on those really key commercial terms up front. And what will have become obvious from that picture is that what we're thinking about in this particular forum is... Uh, not necessarily a merger of equals, but a proper integrated merger in the sense that we're not looking at sort of the type of structure where you may be just looking at co-branding type arrangements or some kind of variety type structure. We're thinking about two firms genuinely kind of combining or two or more firms genuinely combining, which is why we've got all those involved steps. And I think that's probably the more common uh, and, and certainly the more complex. So I was going to just ask each of our panelists, if, if they will, to... Um, to, to think about the heads of term stage, that sort of initial commercial discussions, what, what would you tell a client is an absolute, is, what would be your absolute top pick to appear in those heads of terms? And, and maybe do you, do you want to kick us off, Rob? Yes, thanks, Corinne, and, and uh, good morning, everybody. Of course, there are many things in the head of, heads of terms. I want to focus on one thing, and that's the fundamental purpose of the transaction. Uh, the, trans uh, the purpose of the transaction is not to merge. The purpose of the transaction is to create a fundamentally better firm than the two legacy firms or three legacy firms. And key to that is how are we going to create a value proposition for our clients that is dramatically better? And, and that's quite a difficult question, especially if you're taking two firms, putting them together to create a, a, a significantly larger firm that is going to have a different set of, um, of, of, of peer competitors and different clients' expectations. So in the heads of, or heads of terms, I think you need to have at least the skeleton 
of the strategy that the combined firm will have that is different to the legacy firms. Thanks, Rob. Sorry, I got distracted there. I was too busy writing that down. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> uh, David? Which one? Oh, I'm so sorry, David S. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going I'm to do that more than once, I'm sure. Thanks, <laughs> Corinne. This is so well rehearsed, isn't it? <laughs> um, so from my perspective, uh, building really on what Rob has said there, I would really like to see um, in the heads of terms an idea of not just the what that Rob is talking about, you know, what sort of firm we're going to be in the future. But I'd like to see uh, an idea of the ethos of that firm, how they're going to go about achieving that. They might say we're going to be the number one firm in digital transformation in the you know, coming 10, coming decade, blah, 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 blah. I wouldn't know how they're going to go about it because some people's idea of how they're going to go about it might not match with others. Some might think they're going to be wildly entrepreneurial and pioneering. And others might think that they're going to be very planned and deliberate and focused about what they're going to do. Now, having an idea of that common ethos will really help because in my world, what you want to do is you want to align the two and you want to incentivize that and join it up and sew into that a really good evaluation and remuneration system that absolutely binds those two together. So one without the other leaves you with a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a black spot there. Thanks, David S. Uh, Andrew? Yes, I'm probably going to, have to say something a bit more boring and transactional, uh, which is to uh, consider <laughs> the insurance arrangements. Mm -hmm. uh, so, if you have a sort of acquiring firm and a firm being acquired, what's the insurance position there? Is, is one firm going to be a successor practice and take on the, the, the insurance risk of the acquired firm, or is that not going to be the case? Is the acquired firm going to have to obtain runoff cover? And we're going to talk about what that means a bit, a bit later on. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, absolutely good point. And David F. That's correct. Um, yeah, so from my perspective, it's, it's about the people. I think we're talk, talking largely about people businesses, so very much dependent on the, the people who are doing the, doing the work. Uh, and I think the two levels to that, there may well be very sort of key people, key teams of people um, that uh, the, 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 the new entity are really going to be relying on. You want to be sure that those people are going to be tied into this and there may be a question about whether you know certain key teams don't, don't you know, join in with the merger well that would scupper the whole thing uh, and the other question is about um the uh if you're coming from a firm where um you're sort of you know sort of quite a close-knit sort of community of people you're going to be concerned about what's going to happen to some of those people whether they're just going to get lost in the new entity whether they're going to get offloaded as part of a big redundancy exercise so I think you're going to have some concerns around that and some assurances as to, as to what the new firm is going to look like in terms of the people. Thank you very much, David. And, and, and Zulon, anything, anything to add? Yeah, just a briefly, very couple of things. So governance, how is the firm's get, firm going to be managed going forward? Because um, you're bringing together two governance teams, who's going to take yeah. what roles? Um, what, are going to, what, what are the voting rights going to be? What are the things that partners get to get a vote on? And are there going to, are there going to be any special transitional arrangements around that? Because one party has more votes than the other and it, um, people need some comfort during the initial period. Um, and the other thing I'd mention is creating kind of partner stickability because a merger is always a period of instability. 
uh, and you want to kind of lock into the arrangements that you agree as part of the heads of terms and then eventually the merger agreement, how do you ensure that partners stay with the firm for the, at least for the short medium term? Uh, and that might be kind of locking arrangements around not giving notice within a certain period, et cetera, and um, more stringent restrictive covenants and um, notice requirements uh, and those kind of things. Thank you. Good, good. All, all fantastic points. Thank you very much. And, and sort of all this talk about the heads of terms pulls on a, on a question that actually was raised in, in the previous session that have we carried forward to this one. And that's around the question of who's having these discussions, who's raising these points, who's making sure that the right points are covered up in the heads of teams, who's on that merger team in terms of the merger project team for each firm. Um, and, and I think we need to think about are that merger team clear on the, the firm's strategic um, respective strategic objectives there. Um, so, so I think I'd like to come on to the question of how soon you, you involve the partners in that decision making, but I think we should probably start with the narrower question raised in the last session of who should be on that, that merger project team. Zulon, uh, do you want to pick that one up? Well, I think it needs to be somebody uh, somebody who's very high up. So usually it's the managing partner, senior partner, who, who has real sway in the firm and can make decisions uh, at the highest level. And, and alongside that, you'd have other people that you really need to support um, the, the managing partner or senior partner, whoever's taking the lead. Uh, and normally you'd have people like the head of HR, the the head of risk, for example, um, um, an operations manager, if you if you have one, um, somebody maybe from the IT team to manage the operational side. And you have to remember that all of these people also have day jobs. They have to carry on doing their existing job alongside doing the massive project task of managing this merger alongside you. So you just really need to care, carefully think about resourcing and making sure people have enough bandwidth to dedicate this, dedicate to the merger process, because it can be a very intense period um, and with lots going on uh, alongside your kind of normal day-to-day -day kind of day job. Mm. Thanks, Zulon. And, and Rob, I mean, that those are all incredibly sensible suggestions, Zulon, but it, it does feel like quite a big team. If When, when you're actually in the negotiating room with the potential merger partner I mean who's who's your you have one person leading that process is, is it a team do you get somebody to do that as some kind of agent I mean, do, do you have any thoughts on that sort of side of things yes I think it starts very small and as the as, as the conversations gather momentum and, and more insights different insights are required to take them forward so so it grows but it needs to be managed very very carefully the the press love headlines about uh, pending mergers and sometimes that can scupper the whole deal if it's prematurely uh, leaked. Um, so clearly it starts with, with the most senior leadership and then bringing in people um, as and when their insights are necessary. And I'd also suggest having somebody independent, maybe an advisor, it may be an, uh, an, uh, a non-exec if you've got non-execs on the board, but have somebody that will challenge your thinking. That, that, that's incredibly important because the, these uh, transactions tend to develop a life of their own sometimes and then the objective becomes to complete the transaction not is this the right transaction to be completing uh, thank you rob nice little bit of soft selling there as well i love it yeah <laughs> uh, sorry i'm teasing um and, and i i think that that's a really good point so we've got our, our sort of specific merger team and and it didn't sort of one of the things that we probably should stress is that it's probably really important for at the earliest stage of that discussion between two sides is to have a, have a press statement in, in the draw, kind of agree between you exactly how you're going to react if, if news does get to the press. It might be as simple as 
of course we're always talking to people go away or it could be no we're not talking to anyone but embarrassing if one party says yes we're talking to them and the other person denies all knowledge um so so that's quite a useful sort of early on stage even with the nda um but but thinking about the partners zulon because that's obviously really important you're not going to merge the firms unless the partners are supportive of it but from a from a leaks point of view but also from a project management point of view you can't bring all the partners in on day one um, when should you be involved involving partners in that merger process and and how does the decision making work do you seek a mandate and then a final decision or do you just get people to sign off on the principle and then get management to get it across the line how do you manage that decision making sort of dynamic well, there's two aspects to it. It's it's the it's the kind of management having the finger on, on, on the pulse of their partnership and knowing uh, whether this is actually going to be something that's going to get through the partner vote. Um, so having that kind of deep understanding of your own partners is, is really key. And the other thing is, of course, what your existing constitutional arrangements say um, around delegated authority, whether the management team or the management board have sufficient delegated authority to get to a certain stage before it gets to a formal partner approval or whether you actually need to get that delegated authority through a resolution of the partners now before you move on to any kind of more deeper negotiations or heads of term stage. Thanks, Zulon. Um, and, and David S, uh, it's inevitable that um, partner decision making is going to be uh, focused slightly on the individual in terms of partners understanding what it means for them personally, perhaps for their teams as well as for the, the firms as a whole. I mean, they're going to be focused on the compensation side of things, as at least as part of their consideration. How do you how do you align two compensation systems, and, and how do you sort of bring the partners along in that journey, help them to understand what they can expect and what the impact will be, so that then when the final whenever the final decision making is for them, they feel that they understand that they don't feel um, that they're losing out in, in this proposed merger. Yes. Correct, thanks. You've got to distinguish between two situations here, really, haven't you? One, one is where there's it's basically an acquisition and you're acquiring a business, it's going to come into your um, your remuneration system. And that's all about giving partners certainty as of day one where they're going to sit within the new system. You, you might you might have a time when time over which you know both systems coexist, but basically what the acquired partners want to know is where am I going to sit in this new system? And that is critical to actually getting the deal over the line because everybody's you know, really concerned about, you know, you know, can they pay the mortgage? What's their status going to be? Where do they sit? Who are their peers? All those good things that people rightly get anxious about. So in an acquisition situation, that's going to be really important. And obviously those transitionary provisions, where people are going to sit in, in, the, in, in, in the profit ladder, uh, are, are going to be of vital importance. You've also got to decide how long they're going to last for. So how long are people protected in those positions? And so in an acquisition, you've got something to get you over the line, and then you've got an existing system. Um, uh, if I was in the business being acquired, I'd want to know how that system actually works. So if I was in, the, in being acquired and being asked to go into a new system, I would really dig around in what is actually valued and rewarded not just what's on the piece of paper that's got policy. So in acquisition system, the acquisition situation, uh, I think those are some of the, the, the key elements. The transition where the, there is a merger and people are thinking, okay, we need to change our system um, of remuneration to fit our new, new being, our new business, if you like. 
Rob's already touched on the fact that for some firms, this can be a, a they can be catapulted into a new tier of, um, of of the legal industry, if you like. And the way that they managed before, and the way that they managed remuneration before, needs to change. That's that's a really tricky um, thing to accomplish. You're already doing a massive, um, probably one of the biggest you know, things that firms can do. And as Robert said, if you can avoid merging to achieve your ends, avoid it. But if you're going to merge and you're going to achieve your ends, then you, you you're going to multiply the difficulty of that if you've got to if you've got to have a new system. You can do that, but you've got to be really clear about how you're going to go about doing that um, uh, and, and what, and again, that's why the ethos is really important. You have guiding principles already in place and you've got to have a timescale as well. So you can do it, but you know, you're layering, you're, you're layering upon layer of difficulty there. Thank you, David. I think you're right to, to highlight Rob's point about, you know, merger being sort of the solution of last resort. But I think if we'd answered immediately the question, should we merge with no, it would have been a, a much shorter webinar. So let's park that thought for a moment. Um, but, but there is going to be a no element to this, uh, Zulon and David F. Um, we always in these situations have some dissenting partners. There are some people who often selfishly think this is not going to be a good, as good for, for me personally. Um, therefore, I'm not in favour of it or, or indeed sort of with, with a broader horizon. As in, I don't think this is right for, for our firms or for our future. But either way, how do you manage those? Some people are actually pursuing a completely different agenda and, and therefore choose to exercise their votes to achieve completely different aims. Whatever the rationale, you often find you have those kind of rogue partners, those those dissenters. What 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 do you want to do? You, presumably, you need some kind of dissenter strategy. How do you manage that sort of risk that people can't come and, and what impact does it have? Wait, Zulon, do you want to, to start? And then David F, maybe you can sort of pick up on some of those points. I think, again, it's it's the point about having the finger on, on, on the pulse of your partnership, really. And before you even get to um, getting um, looking for approval from the partners, actually understanding um, who's likely to approve, who's not likely to improve, and also actually mapping your partnership. Who are the most important people that you think are key to retaining in order to get this merger over the line and also to make it successful and con made perhaps concentrating efforts and also identifying those people who are who are perhaps the the most uh, looked up to and um the leaders rather than the followers so they might have a coterie of partners who follow what they do um, and targeting those individuals um uh, and also kind of having a strategy around engaging your partners and communicating with your partners, whether that's through town hall meetings or formal partner meetings or just one-to-one -one or team-on-team, -team, that kind of thing, ha having that kind of soft strategy alongside looking at what your constitution allows you to do and what you're required to do in order to um, get the merger over the line. Um, hopefully you won't have something like unanimous consent requirement because that is that can scupper things and um, be a real kind of, um, uh, can, can really hold you back in making any kind of decision making. Um, but thankfully, on the, other, on the hand, other hand, from the individual's perspective, thankfully we live in an era that, where you can't be forced to work for anyone or be part of a business. So there's also always a possibility that an individual might decide to vote against and eventually walk away from the firm. Um, so you also, as a firm, you need to have a strategy as to how you deal with those people who are really against it and want to leave. Um, so have, you know, having in place a kind of a package all ready to go 
for those types of people so you can quickly come to a negotiation and an, uh, and an agreement for them to go very quickly. Um, the other thing I would suggest you do before you even get to a merger stage is include provisions in your partnership agreement allowing you to exit those people if they vote against a merger that does go ahead. Um, so we often draft into agreements that where, where a partner has voted against the merger but the merger is overall um, approved by the firm that those partners are automatically exited once the merger is completed. That gives you a neat way out so you don't have, get bogged down in those kind of individual negotiations if those partners are, go, are going to be very difficult. If I just bring in some sort of technical cheapy uh, points uh, here as here as well. Um, so there's a I'll talk a little bit more about Chupi in a, in a bit so I won't go into too much detail about what Chupi is all about but uh, one of the debates that's still ongoing is whether LLP members are actually caught by Chupi where there is a Chupi transfer so we're talking about if we talk about two businesses coming together likely is we've got a Chupi transfer um, and the main point of Chupi is to protect the people who work in the business uh, when it's transferred. Um, so as I say, there's this debate as to whether or not LLP members are strictly caught by it. And that's all down to their sort of status. They're, they're not usually employees in the classic sense of an employee of, say, like, you know, a limited company would be. Um, but the the definition of um, employee for cheapy purposes is, is wider than for ordinary sort of statutory employment protection purposes. Um, and there are cases where um, clearly uh, LLP members are, uh, our, our workers for other legislation, such as discrimination, whistleblowing legislation, and so on. There's no binding authority on what the position is uh, uh, as yet with uh, with GP. Um, and there have been cases, certainly equity partners in ordinary partnerships uh, are not um, employees for GP purposes, but there are arguments that can be relied on uh, where an LP member is concerned. The first here is that uh, if the uh, LLP member could say that they were uh, an employee uh, under Chupi, they would have the, uh, the right to object to the transfer under Chupi. And as Zulon says, people can't be forced to work for someone they don't work to, uh, want to work for. Uh, and in the Chupi context, what that means is that the person who is otherwise covered by Chupi can say, actually, I don't want to be transferred into that new organisation. I can leave. And in most respects, that's a bit of a sort of a hollow right because they go, there's no entitlement to any sort of compensation for leaving, unlike you know, where you give notice or, or get terminated and so on. What it would mean though is that they could just leave immediately on the uh, on the transfer and their restricted covenants would fall away because the they've never transferred into the new firm. Um, the new firm wouldn't have anything to enforce uh, against them. So it could be quite a, an interesting move for someone who didn't want to transfer and go away with, with their restricted covenants. Um, uh, out of the way, free to free to compete wherever they choose to go. Quite a, a bold move for for a for a partner though, because it's, it's one thing saying in theory these restrictive covenants don't apply, but another where perhaps you're waiting for money back from the firm, and and the merged firm will presumably want the client relationships, so they they might fight for them. So it, it's a really interesting moment where there's that tension between mm -hmm. the practical reality in terms of seeing how a bold. The partner is but we've all yeah um, i think we'll take a bold move with bold and, partners uh, before but you, you yeah <laughs> yeah and the support of wherever they were going to go to want to take it on which is why these things very rarely you know end up in uh, end up mm. in courts and in appellate decisions we can nicely refer to and point to and say that's the answer but, but an interesting point to, to, to keep on top of and, and not to overlook you're quite quite right david thank you um, I, I want now to think about sort of the due diligence process well obviously once you've got your heads of terms in place then you have that moment that part of the process where you kind of really explore 
the, 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 the different firms work out sort of what you're getting into. There's financial due diligence, kind of risk due diligence, property, governance, culture, people. You're going to look at everything. Um, some firms take a light touch approach. Some are very kind of like um, in-depth discovery. We, we can't possibly cover the entire due diligence process in its entirety. It, it, it would be huge. Um, so what, what I'm proposing to do is pick up on, on some specific points as we go. And in a moment, Andrew, I'd like to come to you on a couple of risk things in, in particular. But just before we do, there's been a really great question raised um, in, in response uh, to something that Rob said earlier. And so, Rob, if you wouldn't mind sort of picking up on this, because I think it, it's, it's a really relevant point in terms of during the continuation of the due diligence process. Um, the, the person who submitted the question says that you, Rob, mentioned the need to focus on a merger evaluation before progressing with the steps to completion. And they quite rightly point out that in practice, these often, often often happen in parallel and can be an iterative process. And in your view, uh, Rob, what's the best way to manage that? Well, it, it, it starts again with, with the leaders discussing what can we do together that we can't do separately and what would need to change because that informs, it informs things that need to be discovered during due diligence. It informs how the post-merger integration uh, would proceed. It informs whether there'll be any gaps. So maybe the merger needs to be accompanied by some bolt-ons or lateral hires in order to bolster uh, practices that that want to be um, you know, highlighted in the future that 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 can't be um, uh, that won't be strong enough with just the merger. So so it's it's all those kinds of things. It's uh, it, it's to to have a very clear view of what the firm's client value proposition strategy is going to be going forward, different to what the legacy firms are, and also how how the post merger integration is going to progress. That that's why it's so important to have that evaluation done, and it needn't be a formal one. It it, it can just be a clear view in the minds of the people that are driving the transaction. That's really helpful. And I think you're right. And it, and it picks up on the point that Giles made on Tuesday around the, if you're going to fail, fail fast. And I think, Andrew, that leads quite neatly into sort of some of the technical points that you would be looking at with clients if you were supporting clients on, on the sort of due diligence particularly. And I want to, to start by picking up on a, a point you made in your sort of need to have for the heads of terms around PI insurance, particularly for smaller firms or the firms being acquired. And talk us through the the kind of the, the insurance risks and particularly the point about successor practice because I think that that could be something that is a, is a fail fast point if it isn't agreed. Yeah so so where a firm is a successor practice they take on responsibility for claims that are made against the acquired firm where the claim is made post post merger or post acquisition um, and the alternative to that is the the acquiring firm or the new entity saying we, we're not taking on any responsibility for anything uh, uh, pre pre acquisition, uh, the existing firm in that scenario has to then rely on their own runoff cover with their existing insurer. Sometimes there's a compromise where the the uh, the inquiring entity or the new entity will, will help pay for that runoff cover if they don't want to have to take on take on the risk. So obviously, if you're a, if you're a smaller firm um, being acquired, the advantage there's clear advantages to being having a successor practice option. Um, you avoid having to pay the runoff cover, which is potentially quite expensive. And then after the runoff ends, there's, a solic there's the solicitor's indemnity fund, which the SRA seem quite keen on shutting down, although it's still it's still it's still going for now. And every so periodically they they postpone their uh, their suspend they're shutting it down, but it seems to be on the cards. It seems to be a matter of time. So successor practices is the way to go. 
from that side. But obviously, if you are going to take on that liability as a successor practice, you want to do your due diligence and make sure you want to look at the, the claims history, uh, the sort of work that the, the, uh, the firm you're acquiring is doing, if they're doing particularly high, high risk work, um, and whether that's, a, that's going to cause a huge issue when the, sort of the, the first premium renewal comes in post-merger, post post-acquisition. And just very quickly, there are some sort of technicalities where the uh, uh, someone is acquiring, maybe hiving off a practice and acquiring a, a particular part of the firm or a few partners. And there are issues there about whether inadvertently a, a successor practice can be formed if there are things such as holding out. And it's quite a technical area, probably don't have enough time to go into it uh, for the purposes of this talk, but just something to be, to be aware of. That's a really good point, actually. And, and, and as you say, I think that comes up quite often in a, in a demerger context where you've got, say, a team move or a portion moving somewhere else. And, and there's no intention at all that there's actually a successor practice, but but not how the rules would see it. And, and, and Andrew, it just, just struck me. So the, the cost of runoff insurance is, is one element that you, that you might be able to manage. But am I right in understanding, remember something from a million years ago, that actually runoff cover is much lower. So say you have, I don't know, 30 million pounds worth of cover, but the runoff only only covers the actual sort of minimum sort of slice. Mm. You, you don't get 30 million pounds worth of runoff cover. You get whatever it is, three million, say, for example, to meet the minimum terms. Or, or have I misremembered that? I think uh, the the additional cover comes at comes at the cost, and that's that's the that's the the issue with it. I see. Um, and so yeah, that, that's to be negotiated, which could be quite challenging, right. I suppose. And, and let's stick for a moment, if we can. So you, you've quite rightly sort of drawn out that sort of due diligence point about sort of really getting under the bonnet of, of the of the firms to work out where the risks lie and how that manages. Um, I know in a in a regulated law firm context that can be quite complex. And I wonder if you could just spend a couple of minutes um, sort of talking through some of the challenges around. Um, particularly law firm mergers, and then apologies for those attendees that are not actually in a law firm environment. Um, if you could just talk to us about how, how the SRA see this, because I know that adds an extra layer of complexity, doesn't it? Yes, I mean, one of the key aspects is confidentiality, which we touched on uh, uh, sort of touched on, on Tuesday. And the SRA have uh, made clear that they expect parties in a merger to, to maintain confidentiality and, and not share client confidential information without consent. And obviously that can be quite difficult when you're trying to manage a due diligence process and you're trying to understand key, key aspects of a firm and also quite crit critically trying to understand whether there are any conflicts of interest, which is obviously also a regulatory requirement that you don't act or put yourself in a situation where you're acting in a position of conflict. So in 2018, the SRA actually fined two organisations involved in a merger uh, the, the one party had disclosed around 7,000 files containing unredacted information and the other, the receiving party, had reviewed all of this information as part of their due diligence process. I think the important point, practice point there is that both entities were fined. What, what the, both the firm handing over the information seemingly without having considered confidentiality at all, but also the firm that read the information in breach of their own obligations. And obviously, we have a, a self-reporting obligation in the code to be to be mindful of. And if you if you receive seven thousand client files unredacted, then I think you probably 
a reasonable belief that someone has committed a breach of their regulatory arrangements, which is which is the threshold for self-reporting. So it's a difficult one to, to deal with in practice. You obviously have your NDA, as you mentioned, talking about what you can do with the information. But the SRA's point is, well, not all, not all mergers actually go through. Some of them fail. So you, know, you, need, to, you need to at least show that you thought about it. Their guidance talks about information that's available in the public domain through directories or you know, certain client, clients are listed on, on panels. Um, you could also think about can financial information or other forms of information be provided in a way which doesn't disclose client names. They, they even actually suggest that retainer or engagement letters to contain a, a paragraph permitting uh, disclosure in certain circumstances. So that might be something to think about, you know, further down if you're thinking about that in the future. So how you square, but I think the conflict is really the, the, the real difficult one. There may, there may be other issues that you can get around, but ultimately you do need to, to understand who the clients are and also what information you hold that might be relevant to other matters. So I think squaring confidentiality and conflicts is, is the real key issue. And just very quickly, so I probably over, overstayed my welcome, <laughs> but uh, it's there, there is an obligation to keep the SRA and clients informed as well, you know, about both, about a merger or an acquisition. Hmm. Um, and in terms of clients, there's obligations in the code of conduct to, to give clients enough information to make informed decisions. Hmm. So, for example, your, your, your regulatory status is changing as a result of a merger, you're changing from a recognised body to a licensed body. Mm. Or you might even, in very rare cases, you might be becoming merging with a body that isn't regulated by the SRA mm. at all. You need to set out to the client how, that, how their, their, their level of protection or the regulatory regime that they're in has changed as a result mm. and obtain their consent. And the SRA is also has various approvals that you need to obtain for the new entity if it's a merger and also additional requirements if it's going to be a licensed body and non-legal non owners or managers are going to be involved. Mm. No, that, that's interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andrew. And I think I think that sort of highlights something I know we've picked up on it when we're sort of thinking about due diligence, but your point about clients is incredibly well made and it sort of aligns with Rob's point that right the way through, you're thinking about your strategic proposition. And I'm sure that clients is really high up the list in terms of identifying what your strategic sort of goals are because we are all about our clients after all. So um, managing that, but without disclosing that information is gonna, that tension is gonna be there right the way for, through the process, right, right from the very start. So, so really useful insight there, thank you. David um, F, I wonder if I could sort of turn to you now, please. Professional services firms are people businesses. They sort of stand and fall on the quality of their people and the relationships that the people have with, with clients. And obviously, we're not just talking about partners. We're talking about the whole team. Now, we're all very familiar with the idea that a chupy transfer happens and they just magically appear on the other side. But I wondered if you could give us some insight into sort of the question about how soon you need to start thinking about that, what sort of processes do you have to go through, when do you have to tell your employees so that people could sort of like bake that into their planning, if you like. Sure, yeah, that's great. So, I mean, we cheaply, the, the clues in the name is there to protect the employees uh, and basic principles are employees transfer over, same terms and conditions on a QP transfer, continuity preserved, right not to be dismissed because of the transfer um, and the right to have their representatives informed about the transfer and in some cases to have consultation. 
Now, TUPE uh, quite unhealthy in a way, doesn't provide a timescale for this process. And like where you're carrying out big redundancies, the law says do it this far in advance. All the law says with TUPE is do it long enough before the transfer to allow consultation to take place. Um, now, the, the slight twist here is that probably in most cases, there isn't actually a legal need for consultation. Uh, people talk about consulting the employees. The main requirement is to provide information to the representatives. And there's a list of things you have to tell them. Uh, which I won't go into in detail, but largely it's about transfers happening. What does it mean for you? And importantly, if you're the transferring employer, what's going to happen the other side of the transfer? And for that, you're going to need to get information from the, the firm that you're joining, merging with and so on. So you need to get that information long enough in advance. Decisions need to be made about what's going to happen to the people. Are people going to be moving to a different location, for instance? Um, that could you know, certainly very much possible. That's something that'll have to be part of this process. Um, so all that needs to be gathered together. Uh, decisions, of course, are going to have to be made early on about what the new firm is going to look like in terms of people, where there are uh, duplications of roles and so on, whether certain roles aren't going to be needed. Um, the, the, the employer, though, only needs to, strictly speaking, consult about things that it is going to do. So if you're transferring people into a, into a, a new entity, a merged firm, you don't, strictly speaking, have to do any consultation with the employees or the representatives about that. You just have to give them the information. Um, and technically, you could do that a very short time before the transfer. I think most, most firms would like to be doing this at, at an early stage, well, well in advance of the legal requirement to do it, really just to get the buy-in of people, um, because naturally, this is going to be very unsettling for people. Once they know that something is afoot, there are going to be questions about, you know, what does it mean for me? Is it, is it going to suddenly mean I've got to come into the office five days a week, you know, as opposed to doing it one day a week now, or whatever it might be. Um, I'm going to be, you know, having a different messed up journey and all these sorts of things are going to, going to affect them. Um, so I, I all that needs to be thought out well in advance. I think that's a really good point. And I think there's, there's the technical side, of course, but I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit in terms of, not just the technical side. So we know that actually you could impose this on people at relatively short notice with having ticked the box on providing information. Yeah. But presumably you don't want to do that because no. that's how they're going to win people over and persuade them that this new merged firm is, is a great outcome for them. What would you advise people in terms of trying to sort of win hearts and minds and persuade, you know, both reassure and, and convince uh, people that this is not just a, a, a neutral thing or a kind of it's not negative, but actually it's it's a positive thing and, and, and why it's positive. For the team. Yeah, so I mean, the way that I think most most firms, businesses would approach this is to is to have um, a lot of information put out early on, not as part of a, as a, as a process of that nature. That's something that can follow down the line. But as, really, as early as possible, once once the detail is known, once things are sort of getting sorted out and settled as to what's going to happen, um, effectively you're sort of selling it. And, and some organisations are very good at doing this. I've dealt in lots of big transactions, re restructurings, and so on for, for you know, big corporations that do this sort of thing very well. That have a big town hall meeting, and they'll be you know, saying what what it's going to mean, what the negatives won't be, what the positives will be, um, so that everyone early on is sort of reassured insofar as they can be. Uh, and understands that this is actually a really good thing that's happening. You know, a lot of people don't like change, but this is a change for the better. And um, and then the legal side of things sort of follows a bit down the line and, it, and is really just the technical side, as you say, that, that doesn't really sort of you know, change an awful, an awful lot. Uh, so I think you. that's important. No, I, I agree. I think that's a really important part. And, 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 and David S., I, I wonder, 
we, we talked about winning the hearts and minds of the kind of the, the employees, the staff, the team. I mean, the same principles obviously apply to partners. We've, we've talked about the technical decision making. But do you, do you and, and, and possibly Rob as, as well have any observations in terms of how the firms can manage that, that culture piece? Not the technical decision making, as in have they said yes or not. How do you persuade partners um, that this is, this is net good? This, this provides a fantastic platform for them and their clients and their practices in the future. Yeah, I can go first, Rob, on that, if you like, from my perspective, from an evaluation and remuneration perspective, clearly that's going to be a vital importance to partners going forward. It, as I sort of inferred in my earlier comments, it sometimes gets a little bit lost in getting the deal over the line and the transition arrangements are right at the forefront. But I think if you can then take all the partners on a journey with you through consultation, through socialisation of where that REM and evaluation system is going to go and how it's going to evolve because it's a new firm, even with an acquired business, if it's a sufficiently large acquisition, you will want to really explain how this all works. And you probably want to take advantage of the change to make some enhancements on it as well. So trying to get everybody on board with, as I said before, what's really valued and, and rewarded around here, how that works in terms of... Um, you know, the, the client base, the business, dealing with the people, what the expectations of the partners are. I think that can work really, really well to pull partners together through the common expectations. So establishing what those common expectations are um, is, is going to be really important to winning partner hearts and minds. Yeah, great. And, and just building on that, David, I, I think a, a lot of things get included under the, the, the label of culture. And I think that in a merger, the most important things are where is our thinking aligned and where are there differences that could trip us up? And, and in things like how do we make decisions? Uh, are we uh, really working in collaborative teams or are we a group of silos? Um, uh, do, do client relationships belong to a partner or do they belong to the firm? They're, they're, they're all these questions that are... Uh, and it's sort of like a Myers-Briggs for organizations. It's, there's no right or wrong, but when you take two different kinds of organizations and try to meld them into one, these are the kinds of things that can trip one up. And there are an awful lot of tools out there that to, to, to measure culture in organizations. And, and many firms use these when, when a merger is coming along. And I just uh, recommend that if a firm does use them, uh, look for a tool that highlights those areas of alignment and difference, not just provides a qualitative description of the firm. Yeah, and, and, and Rob, you, you said something off of me there very quickly, Karen, which is <laughs> no, go ahead. That, that often we were talking earlier about the, the people who are negotiating the merger. Often people know each other pretty well mm. and they know each other's firms because of necessity almost, they've been acting in the same markets. So some of the issues that come up um, around, you know, knowing about clients and who they, and conflicts, et cetera, they can be they can be less of an issue sometimes, but the problem with people knowing each other pretty well at the top of the organisation is they often make assumptions about what's happening below, and that is I think what really needs delving into, as Robert said, in in a in a measured way. You've got to go okay, we get on really really well, you know, uh, we understand each other's terms at a, at a high level in some of the client relationships, and what's happening actually on the ground is going to make a, a big difference. I think. 
and even across the firm. I mean, I, I was involved with the merger a while back where the analysis was done right down to practice groups level. So we could look at uh, the difference in, in culture uh, across the people in the two practices that, that were going to be combined uh, at a practice group level. And, and they differed, they differed. The, the, the culture across different practice groups was, was quite different in some cases. Uh, and so you, it, it's not a one size fits all across the firm either. You're quite right, Rob. And actually, that that leads really neatly into a sort of the, the last sort of topic that I was hoping that we would sort of touch on, and that's that question of post-merger integration. I mean, fantastic news in this particular example. The due diligence is completed successfully. Everybody's thrilled. Um, we we uh, get all the partners on board. We had everybody Zulon, despite your fantastic dissenter strategy. Everybody voted in favour. Everybody came. It, it, it's great news. So you've got your your completion, you know, across the line. Lovely glass of champagne. Jolly, jolly good. Day one of the merged firm, you've now got to actually, <laughs> you, you, you've sort of talked the talk, now you've got to walk the walk. Um, we, we've talked a little bit about sort of alignment of culture and sort of making sure that you're aware of that. And I wonder what, what else, Rob, if I may sort of come, come back to you again, um, firms should be focused on to really make that sort of post-merger integration as effective as it can be, how to sort of build on that, that merger that you've put in place. Well, a couple of points. It's really clear. To, it's important to have a clear project plan. This is a project. It's got to start. It's got to finish. It's got objectives. So, who's going to run the process? Who's going to manage it? What kind? What are the key milestones? What are the key activities? How long they're going to take? What resources do we need? All that needs to be mapped out into a, a clear project. The the other thing uh, sort of links onto something that Zulon said at the beginning, and that is that everybody's got their own day job too. And uh, typically, there's, there, there's a dip in, in, in profitability in revenue per lawyer as well, or revenue per fee owner, uh, in the year following the merger sometimes too. And, and for me, the measuring the success of a merger is looking two years out after the merger, and are we at least back to where we were in terms of margin uh, before? Uh, and, and, and so it's, all, it's, a, it's, a, it's a matter of helping the... Um, uh, the fee earners to, to, to get going again and, and to collaborate and win new business and do better business together as quickly as possible while the, the process of merger integration is, is going on alongside. Mm. Lots of moving parts. It's very important to keep control and, and uh, keep sight of all the things that could go wrong. Mm, absolutely. I, I think you're right. Sort of that, that client-facing piece is, is essential and, and interesting to hear that it's kind of a minimum of two years because people might be thinking, well, what's the time frame? Is it sort of six months, but but a proper period of time? And and, and Andrew, from from a kind of an internal perspective, in terms of not the sort of integration, as in how do you, how do you integrate the practice management system, but but in in terms of some of the internal systems and process, particularly around things like managing risk and those sort of systems, how do you how do you measure whether integration is happening? How how do you manage that sort of integration of of those kind of could be quite different sort of systems? Yeah, I think there needs to be a harmonisation in the, to the risk and compliance teams um, so that they're both working singing from the same hymn sheet, accounts as well, um, in terms of approaches to reconciliations, client balances. Um, but yeah, looking at is there a standardisation across the firm in terms of the way things are being done? You know, anti-money laundering checks is a big one, um, engagement letters. And, you know, so lawyers tend to be creatures of habit and it might be quite hard to get them out of their own <laughs> their old ways, um, particularly if you've got uh, an urgent matter that's hit your desk and you're, you're thinking, have I got time to assimilate my way around this new system or am I just going to go back to what I did at my old place? 
Um, and then that creates a risk of having sort of competing systems, competing document management systems, which just, just creates sort of a, an additional element of, of regulatory risk. So it's just understanding you know, that, that there does need to be a commitment to, to that, um, sort of that one, one, one model. Thank you, Andrew. That, that's great. I, I'm conscious of time. We've got five minutes left. If anybody has any questions or comments that they want to submit to the panel, then do let us know through the chat function. But before we do sort of draw things to a close, um, I wanted to, to sort of to turn to all of the panellists, please, and sort of now with the benefit of that discussion, and we've sort of got to the end of our post-major major integration, and, and to Rob's point, um, our, our, our profitability and our, and our output is, is, you know, four times that which it was before, so it's been a complete success. What, what would each of the panellists say now to a firm as kind of their top tip if a firm was considering embarking on a merger? Maybe, uh, Andrew, you're unmuted. We'd like to go first. <laughs> yeah, well, just building on sort of my area, which is the, the legal and the regulatory yes. side, I'd say, you know, Zulon's a, a really helpful diagram at the start, getting the legal advisors involved quite early. Obviously, plug for, plug for lawyers there. But thinking about the um, the regulatory aspects, so you know you don't end up in a situation where that firm was a few years ago, where you've got seven thousand files and like, right, what are we going to do with this? You know, think, thinking about uh, confidentiality and how that all plays into the process early on, um, so you don't find yourself sort of running around at the last minute uh, with an added headache about how do I how do I comply with my regulatory obligations. Thanks, Andrew. And that's a, that's a really good point, actually. We, we've seen in mergers and demerger type situations, hard copy files from partners from 25 years ago can be a real problem. The new firm doesn't want to pay for storage if they're, say, completely in, electronically filed. So I think that, and actually that's a, that's a huge point, but a, a really good one to make. Thank you. Um, uh, David F. Yeah, thanks, Corinne. Uh, so, yeah, I'd, I'd say just really involving the, the wider, wider workforce as soon as you can to bring them in, let them know what's happening, because most people will, once they start to know something's happening, they'll be concerned about what it means for them, just in their individual day to day lives and also the culture of the, the firm. So sharing as much information as you can, promoting the new firm early on um, so that when you are sort of up and running, people are sort of on board and, and, and you can really drive that sort of new new culture of the one firm. So. Get ordering your new umbrellas or whatever it is. Probably not umbrellas these days, as no one's really going to the office quite the same. But uh, whatever little things you, you have with your, your new firm logo on, make sure you've ordered those nice and early, and uh, everyone's got a nice little gift for uh, for day one of the new firm. That's lovely. And and I know I said this was a quick fire discussion, but I just wanted to pick up on that point about getting people involved early. Would you say that's once you've signed heads of terms, even if they're non-binding, or, or do you have to wait until after exchange, or is there a point? Sort of part way through that pre-exchange period where you've sort of said this looks like it's going to work let's start telling people i mean do, do you have a view on on that sort of yeah element? i mean i think it's going to depend very much on on, on what the what the deal is and, and where you are with things mm. what information may be out there already yeah. um you know some, sometimes i think just prefer to hold a lot of information back until things are very certain otherwise you know there could be a lot of instability you cause more problems by telling people something's going to happen and it's not going to happen and so on yeah. so uh yeah. yeah, no hard and fast. I think you just got to play that one by ear, really. Yeah, I think I think that's that's very sage advice. Thank you, uh, Zula. Take myself off mute. Um, I would say just um, preparation and planning, and ensuring you have the the you know enough and the right resources to help you. Because as I've as, as I've mentioned before, uh, and I've done quite a few mergers in my time now. It, it, for our clients, it's a very intense period, and they don't appreciate mm -hmm. it until they're in the middle of it. 
Uh, and I often um, hear from people who've done it on their own and they, they, you know, they just talk about how, you know, how difficult it was and if they'd known they would have got outside help. So do think, think about not just legal advisors but other operational outside help as well because as I, you know, as Rob mentioned, people's profitability often tends to dip because people are directing all their energy and efforts to integrating and merging whereas they could be doing a valuable fee earning work. So it may be um, more, uh, make more financial sense for you to actually bring in outside help to help you through the process itself and through the integration until you come to the other end. It's a, it's a great point, uh, Zulon, and, we, and it's a session in its own right, but Andrew would also be telling us about the focus that the SRA now has on, on wellbeing and so on. So thinking about the wellbeing of your project team and your senior leaders during that period, as well as how they manage the, the workload is, is going to be a factor too. David S. Um, yeah, I think that as well as I'm sure Rob will talk about strategy in a second, as well as having a strategic view of what the new business is going to look like, you've absolutely got to draw for clients, business, and people the things that are really important to you, and um, be very, very clear on them. Create some headings as to what you need to know about what this merger is going to bring. So not just the strategic rationale, which is absolutely obviously critical, but what are those things that are dear to your heart and you're not, you're not going to give up? Thank you. And, and last 30 seconds, Rob. Thank you, Corinne. Uh, just building on something that uh, that, that uh, Zulon said about advisors, in, uh, I, and some, some one of the speakers on, on Tuesday said, if you use a broker, really trust that broker, or you have to be able to really trust that broker. Remember, if you're using somebody uh, whose fee is depending on the uh, dependent on the deal going ahead, then uh, at least subconsciously, they're going to be focused on making the deal go ahead, even if it's not really the right deal. So, um, in, in my opinion, an advisor who's independent of the outcome is, is better. Uh, the other point is just to keep a very clear view of what it is that you're trying to achieve and keep calibrating. Are we still heading in the in that direction? That that, that rationale that we agreed at the outset, and that rationale is different if you're an acquirer or a target. For a target, it's often a defensive play, mm -hmm. uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't mean you're on the brink of failure, but it's a defensive play. And, and yeah. for the, the acquirer, it, it's about bulking up and becoming stronger. Mm -hmm. So sometimes that causes attention, the different perspectives. So yeah. keep it. And, and then my last point is treat it like a project. Have a, a absolutely clear view of what the next step is and who's responsible and what resources and what the objective is. Great. Thank you, Rob. That's fantastic. And thank you all. We're at time. So I'm going to draw things to a close there. I'd like to thank all of the panellists today for all of those fantastic insights. It's been really illuminating. I've very much enjoyed the discussion. Just a quick reminder about the recording for our previous session around sort of managing remuneration, high flyers and underperformers. There will be a recording available of these two sessions in due course. And finally, our next session is going to be on the 29th of June. And it's building on what I've seen personally with clients about that sort of firms embracing B Corp status. We're thinking about the greater good and how professional firms are embracing B Corp status, ESG and other non-profit making initiatives. So um, please do join us on the 29th of June for that one. We'll circulate details in due course. And meanwhile, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time. Thank you. <laughs>